Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Let me read to you some of the drugs that I have read that you have taken. Testosterone. Mm-hmm. Turnabolin. Dumb. And parabolin. Da. Those are powerful drugs. Yes, these are all steroids. I was an untouchable, a sacred athlete. Tonight, you'll hear how this former Russian track star and her husband exposed Russia's top-secret doping program and damning details about just how far it was willing to go to win Olympic gold. It's clearly the final nail in the coffin for Russian track and field. This is what is left of the ancient Yazidi city of Sinjar. We put a camera on a drone to try to capture the enormity of the devastation. ISIS sees the Yazidis as devil worshippers, and their policy here was total annihilation. What you're looking at is a thousand years of civilization reduced to rubble in 15 months of terror. It may surprise you to hear that Oklahoma is the most earthquake-prone state in the continental U.S. In 2009, there were on average two earthquakes per year of magnitude 3 or greater. Last year, there were 907. What's more astonishing is that nearly all of Oklahoma's earthquakes are man-made. What Quake app do you use? I use the one. These Oklahomans say they check their phone apps to track earthquakes around the state. This must be unnerving. It's, it's no way to live. It's no way to live. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Lara Logan. I'm Armin Kitayan. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. 
Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports 60 Minutes. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash 60 minutes. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. With the Summer Olympics in Rio less than 100 days away, Russia finds itself embroiled in a doping scandal unseen since the days of the East German sports machine back in the 1970s and 80s. In November, the entire Russian track and field team was suspended after an investigation by the World Anti-Doping Agency found what it called a culture of cheating. Tonight, you'll hear from the unlikely couple who provided the proof that took down their country's state-sponsored system of doping. Yulia Stepanov was one of Russia's elite runners, fueled by steroids. Vitaly Stepanov had a low-level job collecting urine and blood samples inside the very agency assigned to combat drug use and sport. Together, they exposed the dark secrets of their country's doping program, and as you will learn for the first time, damning new details about cheating at the 2014 Winter Games in Sochi, Russia. Vitaly and Yulia Stepanov now live in this sparse one-bedroom apartment somewhere in the United States, which we will not reveal for their protection. It's far from the cries of Trader and Judas back home, the price for believing in the purity of sport. For me, when you have this 100% belief that you're doing something right, you just follow this belief and, and, and let's see what happens. Yulia's maiden name was Rusinova, and her specialty was the 800 meters. For more than five years, she willingly took anabolic steroids for strength and the blood-boosting substance EPO for endurance, all of it directed by her Russian coaches and medical staff. Let me read to you some of the drugs that I have read that you have taken. Testosterone? Mm-hmm. Turnabolin? Da. And parabolin? Da. Those are powerful drugs. Da. Yes, these are all steroids. Did you think anything that you were doing was, was wrong? It's hard to believe you're doing something wrong when everybody around you says it's right and there's no other way that you're shown. I was an untouchable, a sacred athlete. Untouchable meant she could take banned substances without the fear of being caught. The performance-enhancing drugs put her on track for the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. She met Vitaly Stepanov at, of all places, a drug seminar. He had a low-level job at the Russian anti-doping agency, known as Rusada. He was a true believer. I wanted sports to be fair. If somebody wins, I want him, him or her to be a real hero, not, not a fake one. 
15 minutes into their first date, he got a dose of reality. She says, uh, you know, I, I'm doping. I'm, uh, all, all my teammates are doping as well. And what do you think? I had suspicion, but I was hoping that I'm here to fix something. She says that's not what Rosada does. Rosada helps Russian athletes to win medals. Rosada does testing, but uh, fake testing. Yet somehow two very different lives equal to marriage. Vitaly now lived with doping at home and corruption at work. There was a situation when I was offered a bribe by the vice president of the federation. Uh, just like that person comes to me and he says, uh, this athlete cannot be tested. How much money do you need? And my answer is, uh, this is what I get paid for and I don't need any extra money. So she, she was selected, she must be tested. Vitaly says he repeatedly informed his bosses about the corruption, only to be told what happens in Russia stays in Russia. Frustrated, he made a dangerous decision to reach outside Russia to the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA. Over the next three years, he sent 200 emails and 50 letters detailing what he had witnessed. But Vitaly says WADA told him it did not have the power to investigate inside Russia. His crusade would eventually cost him his job and drive Yulia to file for divorce. Sometimes I thought he was my enemy, that he wants to interfere. It was not easy. I think I'm, I'm, I have this opportunity to become a taxi driver in, in Moscow. Well, I'll be a divorced taxi driver, so that's... Uh, that's where you were at at that point in time? Yes. yes. The fight was over? The fight was over. I, I lost. The turning point came right before the London Games, when Yulia was injured. No longer a medal contender, she lost the protection of the system and tested positive for EPO. Facing a two-year ban, she called Vitaly just days before their divorce would be final. And he suggested, let's tell the truth. Let people know the whole truth, the way things happen in Russia. To destroy the system, one has to talk about it. After I finished talking to her, you know, I, I think, am I going to be able to get another person on my side? After three years of trying, I, maybe I can get my wife on my side, uh, trying to, you know, clean up sports. Not only did he bring her to his side, he convinced Yulia to take an extraordinary risk and use her phone to secretly record her coach giving her steroids, her teammates detailing their drug use, and the team medical director who told her how to get back on the drug program. It was total craziness. That's how I held the phone. I put the jackets over here, and that's how I held the phone this way. In this recording, 800-meter runner Maria Savanova admitted she took performance-enhancing drugs. Savanova won gold in London. She said, my coach helps to cover up the tests. There is no other way to do it. Everyone in Russia is on pharma. The World Anti-Doping Agency steered the Stepanovs to a reporter at the German television network ARD. Their tapes became the centerpiece of this documentary, which aired in December 2014 and sent shockwaves through the world of sports. You know, we don't pick who our heroes are, but, but at the end of the day, they stood up and they did the right thing to ensure that clean athletes' rights 
are protected around the globe. Travis Tiger, the CEO of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, has been advising the Stepanovs since they fled Russia. Tigard has built a reputation taking down some of the world's most notorious dopers, including Lance Armstrong. You have called what the Stepanovs have uncovered a defining moment in the anti-doping movement. Why is that? The evidence confirmed what a lot of people have believed over the years. This is not just a few athletes obtaining performance-enhancing drugs. This was a system orchestrated by the sport leaders to ensure that they won at all costs. We're essentially limited to athletics and to Russia. The outrage sparked by what the Stepanovs uncovered finally forced WADA to launch an investigation. Its 300-plus page report detailed what WADA called, quote, a deeply rooted culture of cheating that reached the highest levels of the Russian government. So bribes? Bribes. Covering up tests? Covering up tests. Fake urine? Fake urine. You name it. You name it, they attempted to get away with it. We're talking about, fair to say, the highest levels of the sports ministry in Russia? Listen, they're responsible. The, the buck stops there. The cabinet-level position funds and oversees all of sport. So they're ultimately responsible. When it came to doping in Russia, nobody was more powerful than Grigory Rachenkov. He ran its drug testing lab and had the ability to make positive drug tests disappear. The WADA report called him the heart of Russian doping. In the wake of the scandal, Rachenkov was fired by the Kremlin and has since taken refuge in the U.S. for fear of his own safety because of how much he knows. Over the last few months, Rachenkov has been sharing what he knows with Vitaly Stepanov. What he doesn't know is that Stepanov has recorded 15 hours of their conversations. What Rachenkov has revealed threatens the credibility of the results at the 2014 Winter Games in Sochi, Russia. He told me what, what I and Yule did. We could, we could only see this much. But what was happening with cover-ups, it's like this. <laughs> Rachenkov, who ran the drug testing lab in Sochi, bragged he was in possession of what he called the Sochi list the Russians who competed dirty at the games. He also said the Russian equivalent of the FBI, the FSB, was directly involved. What did he tell you about the FSB, the Russian intelligence officers, and the Sochi lab? That some FSB agents worked as uh, doping control officers during the Sochi games. That... Uh, FSB tried to control every single step of the uh, anti-doping process in Sochi. We have listened to all of the conversations, and the biggest bomb dropped by Rachenkov was this. At least four Russians won gold medals at the Sochi Olympics while on steroids, and his lab covered it up. A representative for Rachenkov told us, for now, he was not available for comment. Look, it's a stunning revelation, and if true... It's a, it's a devastating blow to the Olympic values. Rachenkov's information is likely to influence the governing body of track and field when it meets next month to decide whether to lift its suspension of the Russian track team and allow it to compete in Rio. It's clearly the final nail in the coffin for Russian track and field. Are you in favor of Russia competing in the Rio games and track and field? We're not. That can't come at the expense of clean athletes' rights.
One of those clean athletes is American Alicia Montano. She's among the world's top 800-meter runners and was a medal favorite at the 2012 London Games. Seven over. That's got to be a little tough for you to watch right there. Mm -hmm. right? This was the first time Montano allowed herself to watch the race she lost to gold medalist Maria Savanova. You may remember Savanova told Yulia Stepanov, everyone in Russia is on pharma. And I just see her blow right past me, and I'm thinking, okay, you know what, I'm going to go now. Montano had led the race for about 600 meters before finishing fifth. I mean, Savanova passed you like you were, with all due respect. Literally standing still. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you realize, at that moment, I, real, I realized I'm racing against robots. Robots. I'm racing against robots. I mean, these, these People guys, that aren't really human. They're not really human. You know, they've altered their chemical makeup in a way that I'm not going to be able to do. Maria Savanova and another Russian who finished third in the race faced lifetime bans for doping meaning Montano should have realized her Olympic dream in the form of at least a bronze medal. Do you spend much time thinking about what could have been? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the hardest things is it affects me every single day. You know, I, my, my family and I, you know, it, I'm not doing it for the money, but at the end of the day, I deserve what is owed to me. Those times when, you know, sponsors ask you, are you a medalist? And you have to answer no. It makes you hang your head in shame. At 30, Alicia Montano is now training to run in Rio. In a twist worthy of a Russian novel, she could find herself racing against Yulia Stepanov, who has petitioned to run at the Summer Olympics without a country, but a cause, under an Olympic flag. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it american soldiers have been drawn deeper into the war against isis and this past week a third u.s serviceman was killed in northern iraq it's a fight that began more than a year and a half ago when isis was expanding its territory and it's been hard to shed light on the areas under its control because most reporters can't go there. But there have been some places where ISIS has been run off, and Sinjar is one of them. It's a small city that lies on a highway connecting ISIS territory in Syria to its territory inside Iraq. And when ISIS fighters took control, they began to systematically wipe out the Yazidi people who lived there. After Sinjar was liberated, we went there with Father Patrick Desbois, a French Catholic priest who's one of the world's leading voices on genocide. He spent 15 years documenting the mass murder of Jews by Hitler's mobile death squads. Now he says he's on a mission to expose what he calls the ISIS killing machine. This is what is left of the ancient Yazidi city of Sinjar. We put a camera on a drone to try to capture the enormity of the devastation. ISIS sees the Yazidis as devil worshippers, and their policy here was total annihilation. What you're looking at is a thousand years of civilization reduced to rubble in 15 months of terror. Last November, some 7,000 Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers, backed by heavy U.S. air power, 
pushed the Islamic State out of here. The Kurds said they killed around 300 terrorists in the two-day offensive. This is what it takes to claim a city back from the Islamic State. There is nothing left. Any direction you walk, all you find is more destruction. One street after another. An entire city literally in ruins. We walked the shattered streets of the Yazidi heartland with Father Patrick Debois, who was on his fourth trip to Iraq. He told us what ISIS didn't destroy, Kurdish forces leveled as they fought their way in. Uh, I asked to Peshmerga, they told me it was the only way to make them go out. So it was the only way. The only way to make ISIS go out is to destroy the city. It's the terrible. only way to defeat them. Yeah, this is terrible. Father Dubois has been studying the minds and methods of mass murderers like Hitler most of his life. And he'd come here to investigate the genocide of the Yazidis by ISIS an organization more sophisticated than he expected. It's not easy to manage a war, to manage international terrorism, and to manage a genocide in the same territory. Hitler, it took for him a long time before doing all that. And ISIS, they did it so quickly. Does that speed frighten you? Yeah, it's frightening because it means, actually, there is a kind of science of terrorist war and genocide. They develop a science. The Islamic State stormed into Sinjar in August 2014. They murdered at least 5,000 and kidnapped thousands of others as they cleansed the land of Yazidis. <laughs> Father Dubois said their strategy here was unlike anywhere else. Those who could fled to Sinjar Mountain, where images of their desperation reached the world, in part prompting the first U.S. airstrikes of the war. So you see when we make Evidence of the ISIS killing machine lies, Father Dubois said, in the city's remains. Which building is this? So that's the administration. It's where they put the Yazidi. That's why he brought us to what's left of the main administration building. So that is the beginning of genocide. It's the first step for me. In this building? Yeah. Here, ISIS rounded up Yazidi men, women and children. They say to the people, don't worry, we bring you to administration. It's why they accept. And they don't think that they're going to die? No. That's why they come? Yeah, that's why you come, and here will begin the selection. And so this system is a system of permanent, permanent, permanent selection. Father Dubois said they're registered, separated, and ordered to hand over money, jewelry, cell phones. ISIS had a plan for everyone. They see a boy who is 10 years old, he can carry a bomb, he will carry bombs. They see a girl, she's beautiful. Ah, she will be sold to an emir to be a sex slave. They have the sense of utility. A person is only to be used for something. So each person has a purpose? Each person has a purpose. And if they have no purpose, what happens? They kill them. Wherever we went in Sinjar, Kurdish soldiers came with us. They said there were still hidden bombs all over the city. And Father Dubois used them as a guide. Where are they taking us? The tunnel. The tunnels. One of the tunnels, yeah. ISIS owned this ground for 15 months, transforming Sinjar into a fortress with tunnels underneath the city. The entrance to one was inside this house. With ISIS still around two miles from here, the soldiers were tense. What we found surprised us. That's incredible. I mean, it just looks like a normal house. Yes. 
There were mountains of dirt in every room. Whatever they took from the ground, they kept inside these walls, so American drones wouldn't see a tunnel being built. This particular tunnel goes to the home of the Islamic State emir of the city, basically the top guy in charge here when the Islamic State were in control. And we're told that he and his inner circle, his bodyguards, his men would hide underground here with him during the bombings. Out on the street, Father Dubois was approached by survivors, desperate for answers about family members still missing. What is the name of his father? There are mass graves across Sinjar, and we'd been to some of them. At this one, east of the city, where Kurdish officials had marked off the site, there were human bones still scattered in the dirt. It's believed Yazidis fleeing to Sinjar mountain were caught by ISIS and killed here. It's impossible to know how long it's been here. No, we don't know. Only a doctor can say. And in this mass grave on the outskirts of Sinjar, he was told some 80 Yazidi women were executed. They shot them right here? Yeah. And how do they know this? We know this because uh, we can find bones and everything on the ground. There's half a skull there and two skulls there? Yeah. And here you have half of the head. Wow. And here too. It's really a shooting extermination site. At every site we visited, his team photographed and filmed the evidence and recorded GPS coordinates so they could come back. His lead investigator, Nastasi Costel, has been at his side helping to locate killing fields like these for years. As they carry out their investigation in Yazidi towns and villages, Father Dubois is not asking eyewitnesses to recall what they saw more than 70 years ago, like he did with the Holocaust. How many people are buried here? This time he's interviewing survivors with the horror still fresh in their minds. So how does that change your investigation? It's completely different because the challenge now is to stop the genocide, is to try to save people, is to try to carry the voice of the victim, to make people conscious. The, the killing machine is alive. So do you feel a sense of urgency then? Um, urgency and um, the immense tragedy also to have the conscience that the world doesn't wake up more now than in 42. For the Yazidis, there's no holier place than the Temple of Lalish, about 100 miles from Sinjar. They believe in one god and seven angels, an ancient religion that over time has adopted elements of many faiths. As long as they've been on Earth, Yazidis have been persecuted. Why do you think it is? They're a peaceful people. Yeah, but um, uh, it's a people who, uh, as I understand, uh, refused to assimilate. And so it was uh, like a pocket of resistance inside the Islamic world. Their faith is passed orally from generation to generation. So they have no sacred written book like the Bible or the Quran, which is one of the reasons ISIS has condemned them to death or sexual slavery. When Yazidi women are rescued or escape from the Islamic State, they come here to the spring that flows under the temple to be cleansed. Now the Yazidis are landless in their own land. There are nearly 200,000 
living in refugee camps about 120 miles northeast of Sinjar in Kurdistan, where Father Dibois spends most of his time piecing together a picture of what happened to the Yazidis of Sinjar. He's recorded over 400 hours of testimony so far, more than 80 men and women, most of which, we caution you, is disturbing to see and difficult to hear. And he allowed us to sit in with him on his second interview with Nazreen, who's 21, still terrified of ISIS, after more than a year under their control, she covered her face. The wife would hold down my hands as the husband raped me, she told Father Debois. She said at one point she was tied to a bed, naked for three months, and raped day and night. It was many men every night, or it was a... Every day there would be ten men, and they were from all countries. Maha is 28. She had recently arrived in the camp, held by ISIS, or Daesh as they're known here, for almost a year and a half. She gave these photographs to Father Debois, which she said ISIS had taken. They showed three of her children dead, poisoned, she claimed, by the man who was raping her. He killed them because we tried to escape, she said. But for Father Debois, the heart of the ISIS war machine is not only the suffering of the Yazidi girls. If we show only the girls, I think in one way... The Daesh, they don't care. It's not their secret. Their secret is a long-term machine they are preparing. I'm afraid that they use the image we give of them, rapist. It's like if you say Hitler was a rapist. Say yes, they raped a lot of girls. But, unfortunately, it was a much larger machine. And ISIS is the same category of machine. Very little is known about very that. Very little, very little. And for me, that's the secret of Daesh. A secret that lies with boys like these two brothers, who for their safety asked us not to use their names. They said ISIS kept them alive to train them as terrorists. Everything they did was to try to make us like them, he said. They ordered us to plant hundreds of bombs and taught us how to detonate them. It seems uh, the person received a bullet in the head. Forensic specialists are finally beginning to exhume these mass graves. And the number of dead, already around 5,000, is expected to rise. As the Yazidi genocide enters its 21st month, there are still about 3,000 Yazidis being held by ISIS today. How do you stop the machine? It can be stopped only military. Militarily? Only military. How, how could be, be stopped Hitler? You had to defeat him on the battlefield. In one way or another. And kill the idea. And kill the people who carry them. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. During this time of year, Oklahomans are accustomed to searching the skies for signs of tornadoes. Today, they're just as wary of the hazards coming from the ground beneath their feet. Tornado Alley is now Earthquake Alley. 
Oklahoma is the most earthquake-prone state in the continental U.S. What's more astonishing is that nearly all of Oklahoma's earthquakes are man-made. They're being triggered by the biggest and most important industry in the state, oil and gas production. But it's not from fracking, which is what most people think. Before 2009, there were on average two earthquakes a year in Oklahoma that were magnitude three or greater. Last year, there were 907. That's right, 907. The vast majority of earthquakes are small, causing little or no damage. But what they lack in punch, they make up in sheer volume. This tally from the U.S. Geological Survey shows the number of earthquakes in Oklahoma has increased every year since 2009, with more than 2,000 magnitude 3 and above. That means more of the bigger ones, like this 4.3 magnitude quake last December in Edmond, Oklahoma. I woke up scared to death, praying that the house wouldn't fall down. I couldn't believe that the windows didn't shatter. Melinda Olbert and Kathy Matthews are neighbors in Edmond. What quake app do you use? I use the one. They say they check their phone apps to track earthquakes around the state all day long. But look at that. Cherokee, Enid, Fairview, Medford, Stillwater. All in one day. Mm-hmm. All in one 24-hour period. One hour ago, two hours ago, four hours ago. This must be unnerving. It's, it's no way to live. It's no way to live. Cornell University seismologist Katie Karanen was teaching in Oklahoma when the increase in quakes began. She says the situation is unprecedented. What's going on here in Oklahoma has never been seen before? Just the number of earthquakes is astounding, but how fast it grew is perhaps even more astounding. Karenin and her student, Catherine Lambert, have set up equipment to detect extremely small quakes in an area where there haven't been many, hoping the small quakes might provide warnings of larger ones. And so, so far we've only looked at data from four days of recording. And so we see small earthquakes um, in the area. Even Uh, over four days? Even over four days we actually see many dozens of earthquakes. Many dozens? That's right. Karenin was among the first scientists to link the earthquakes to oil and gas production. These are man-made earthquakes. Most people feel that the majority of these are linked to this water being disposed. The water that's causing the earthquakes is not from fracking, which is water and chemicals pumped underground to free up oil and gas. This is naturally occurring water that's been trapped below ground with the petroleum for millions of years. This is the oil being pumped out. Oil, gas, and water. Gary LaRue is president of Petro Warrior, a small independent oil company that operates 14 wells in Oklahoma. What happens in this cylinder is what happens on a grand scale at wells across the region. The oil, gas, and water naturally separate. So the bubbles... This will be the salt water here. This is gas up here. That's the gas. and Here's the oil. The oil. Like every other operator in the region, big and small, LaRue's oil wells produce more water than petroleum. The gas and oil are collected in tanks for sale, but the water is too briny to be recycled or used. It's considered waste. All of this is salt water. Salt water. Mm. So it has to go back in the ground. We have to get rid of it. Getting rid of the water means sending it down a disposal well that's drilled deep below the freshwater aquifers to prevent their contamination and the zone where it came from. This is it? This is it. 
This is what all the talk's about. Just a well on the ground. LaRue's disposal well is one of more than 3,000 in Oklahoma. The state created a website to explain the earthquakes. This map shows disposal wells as blue dots. The orange dots are earthquakes. When the price of oil went over $100 a barrel in 2008, oil and gas production increased dramatically. So did the amount of wastewater and earthquakes. What's causing these earthquakes? What we've learned in Oklahoma is that the earthquakes that are occurring in enormous numbers are the result of wastewater injection. Mark Zoback is professor of geophysics at Stanford University. Zoback says there are two factors behind the earthquakes. One is the large volumes of water being disposed, and the other is where it all goes, deep down into a layer of earth called the Arbuckle. What makes this such a good place to dispose of all that water? Well, it's very thick. It's porous, it's permeable, so it can accommodate, you know, very large injection rates. The only problem with the Arbuckle is that it sits directly on top of the crystalline basement, a rock layer riddled with earthquake faults. So this water is seeping into the faults. The water pressure is seeping into the faults, and the fault is clamped shut, and the water pressure sort of pushes the two sides of the fault apart and allows the slippage to occur today when it might not occur for thousands of years into the future. Earthquakes are now a daily occurrence in Oklahoma, but it was three quakes in November 2011 near the town of Prague that caught everyone's attention. One was magnitude 5.6, the largest in Oklahoma's history. Having an earthquake right now, our light's shaking quite a bit here. It toppled a spire at St. Gregory's University and severely damaged 14 houses, including the one where John and Jerry Loveland live with their two children. Our bed was shaking, and all you could hear was glass. You know, earthquake insurance is something that you don't ever think you're going to have to have. Here. In Oklahoma. Especially in Oklahoma. Like most Oklahomans, the Lovelands didn't have earthquake insurance and have been doing their own repairs to save money. More than four years after the quake, Jerry Loveland often resorts to simply hiding the damage. Doesn't that concern you that you've got a crack like this? I'm afraid that if we went in and fixed these and then there was another earthquake, even a little, it's going to crack it all and then you've done all that work for no reason. Yep, I'm not sure crack. covering it is fixing it. It's not fixing it, but that's our only choice. It's not like we have the money to bulldoze the house down and start over. That'd be great, but it's not going to happen. We have a mortgage. We live on one income, and I realize that's, that's our choice, but our choice is great when somebody else didn't screw our house up. So... And that's proven fact that somebody did it. It's not a natural disaster. Oil and gas is Oklahoma's largest industry. You can see its importance to the state from the oil rig in front of the Capitol. In recent years, companies like Sandridge, Chesapeake, New Dominion, and Devon Energy have employed nearly one of six workers in Oklahoma. All the companies declined to provide someone to speak to us. For years, Governor Mary Fallon was skeptical the quakes were connected to oil and gas production. But as the number of quakes skyrocketed, she created an advisory council in 2014 to study the situation. Last summer, Fallon conceded a connection. I think we all know now that there is a direct correlation between the increase of earthquakes that we've seen in Oklahoma with disposal wells. Nonetheless, 
Last year, the state cut the budget of the agencies investigating the quakes and regulating the oil and gas industry. Kim Hatfield of the Oklahoma Independent Petroleum Association sits on the governor's council. He did agree to an interview and insists the science is inconclusive. You have to understand the injection into the Arbuckle is not something that started in 2009, 2008, or even 2000. This is something that's been going on for uh, 60, 70 years. And we've had a sudden change. And the question is, what changed? The amount of wastewater injected into disposal wells last year is triple what it was in 2009, adding up to more than 200 billion gallons of water in seven years. The thing that's different is the amount of water that the oil industry is pumping into the Arbuckle Formation. That's what's different. And along with that difference comes these earthquakes. That's not the trigger. The injection of water is a factor, but it is not possibly the only factor. We don't know. So what more needs to be done? We need to understand this issue. It's not as simple as saying, uh, well, let's just stop injecting water. Uh, the energy industry is, is, uh, is very important to the state. If it's your house that's shaking, there is no way that we're moving fast enough. Mike Teague is Oklahoma's Secretary of Energy and Environment. He's got the tough job of protecting Oklahoma's anxious citizens without damaging its most important industry. I keep track of all earthquakes above a 3.0 in the state. And 2012, we had three dozen in the entire year. Uh, 2013, we had 109. Next year, we had 585. Last year, we had 907. That's an alarming increase. Absolutely. So what have you concluded is the cause? Well, the focus right, is, right now is disposal wells. How do you balance out the economic benefit of the gas and oil industry and the public safety? I don't think it's a balance. I think public safety has to take precedence. Mark Zoback from Stanford has been working with Mike Teague and the State Earthquake Council for more than a year. Lowering the total amount of saltwater injection into the Arbuckle is the only way that these earthquakes are going to start to subside. Do they have time? There's nothing we know that says larger earthquakes are imminent, but everything we know says that the earthquakes are going to be continuing and the, there is a probability of larger earthquakes in the future if they do nothing. This winter, the state called for widespread voluntary reductions in wastewater disposal by as much as 45% in earthquake zones. More than 600 wells are covered by the cutbacks. Last year, when neighboring Kansas had similar seismic activity, it reduced oil wastewater disposal and saw a 60% drop in quakes from the year before. But considering the huge volume of water already pumped underground in Oklahoma, it's too early to know whether the cuts here will succeed. Nowhere is the need for action more urgent than Cushing, Oklahoma. Cushing is home to the nation's largest crude oil storage and pipeline facilities, which the Department of Homeland Security calls critical infrastructure. The complex was rocked by a series of earthquakes last fall. Now, the state has asked you to stop putting so much water down. They did a voluntary action. We're six miles away from Cushing over there. 
Independent oil man Gary LaRue says cutting back on the disposal of water also means cutting back on the production of oil and gas. With the recent drop in oil prices, the cutbacks, he says, will hurt. $30 a barrel, if we have to cut our production in half because of restrictions they put on us, we're done. You're out of business. Yeah, we won't be drilling wells. We won't be employing local people to do our service work. We're done. It will drive us out. Just two weeks ago, LaRue abandoned one of his 14 wells to comply with the cutbacks. You know that it's going to hurt uh, the companies. It's going to hurt your friends. It's going to hurt your neighbors. But you cannot compromise when it comes to public safety. We may be talking about trucking at 30 miles away. I think that could be done. I won't be fear-mongered into thinking that you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Because in my heart of hearts, uh, I believe you can and I believe you should, and I believe you haven't, and now you're paying the price. We're paying the price. Bill Whitaker has covered earthquakes around the world, but Oklahoma's are a different story. Go to 60MinutesOvertime.com, sponsored by Pfizer. In the mail, viewers commented about our story on fintech. Leslie Stahl reported on how financial technology is revolutionizing the way we do our banking. One Minnesota viewer wondered if 60 Minutes has been sending mixed mobile messages. Okay, last week you aired a story showing how fragile the security of sending something from your mobile device is. So I decided to wipe all my financial apps from my phone. This week you air a story saying taking charge of finances from mobile devices is the wave of the very near future. Other viewers thought the young fintech entrepreneurs were callous about bank workers losing their jobs because of the fintech revolution. People are creative and can find other jobs. Really? So typical of today's entitled millennials. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. I've been a reporter for more than three decades, and along the way I've been talking to myself in notebooks I've carried in my back pocket. They've captured thoughts about life, parenthood, death, friendship, and more. I'm John Dickerson, and I'd like you to join me in figuring out what these 30 years of notebooks mean in my new podcast, Naval Gazing. Each episode, we dig through the piles of notebooks that I've been collecting, and from their entries, try to sort out what makes a life. This collection of audio essays is available wherever you get your podcasts.